Mr. President, parliamentary inquiry. The state's inquiry. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? The issue before the body is the previous question. The secretary will call the roll. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Season 3 of Choiceless. In 2013, a Texas state senator, Wendy Davis, became a household name overnight when she filibustered the Texas Senate's extreme and sweeping anti-abortion bill, SB 5, which became better known when it passed in the House as HB 2, and parts of the law were challenged and struck down in the Supreme Court case Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstedt. It was a restrictive anti-choice bill that aimed to make Texas one of the nation's most hostile states toward abortion rights. Among other things, it banned abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy, required abortion clinics to meet the same standards as ambulatory surgical centers, and mandated that abortion providers have admitting privileges at local hospitals. It passed in the Senate and then in the House with a few changes, so it was bounced back to the Senate at the end of a 30-day special session. This allowed Democrats in the Senate to filibuster. My name is Wendy Davis. I'm a former Texas state senator. We talked about whether we should filibuster the bill, immediately decided that, yes, we, we wanted to do that. And then there were three of us who were willing to, to be the person to carry that, that flag for the day. And two of them were men. And it was decided that because this was so uniquely impactful for women, that it made sense that a woman senator should be the one to filibuster. The rules and strategies of a filibuster can vary from state to state. But in Texas, one of its most effective uses is to try to kill a bill by running out the clock to prevent a vote before the end of the legislative session. The senator conducting the filibuster cannot eat, drink, use the bathroom, or lean on anything for support. And she must speak on topics relevant to the bill, which can be open to interpretation. The filibuster ends after the senator voluntarily yields the floor or after three violations— in which case the Senate votes on a point of order, which, if sustained, forces the senator to yield the floor. I got up early. Um, A doctor came over, a a woman gynecologist, who fitted me for a catheter at about 6.30 in the morning. Um, I listened to one of my favorite songs to try to help me relax and kind of put things in perspective. It's a Bruce Robeson song that's called What Would Willie Do?, We here in Texas, you know, worship Willie Nelson. I certainly do. And um, it's a song about how Willie has gone through some real challenges in his life and how he just keeps getting back up and playing another day and rolls with it. And I wanted to kind of put all of this in perspective for myself and and to not feel like um, I, I couldn't survive it if it didn't work out well. I asked myself, what would a Willie do? Long ago, um, I had one boiled egg. I was afraid to eat more than that, and I was definitely afraid to drink too much um, liquid. And then I headed to the Capitol probably, I don't know, 8.30 or 9. I sat down with my staff, and we went through the binders that 
they and other Democratic staffers had put together of materials for me to read. And most importantly, some of those binders, of course, were filled with the stories of women who had showed up to testify at committee hearings and who'd been turned away, who'd been told after many hours of testimony that their stories had become repetitive as though any individual's unique experience with abortion could be called repetitive. Um, I wanted that day to be about the people who had been told they weren't going to be heard. And there came a point where we thought we were going to run out of stories. My staff got a little bit worried about that. And so they put out a call on social media asking for more. And within that day, we got over 16,000 stories. Um, We joked that we actually had binders full of women, truly, um, that we brought out to the Senate floor that day and and that we read from and sure enough right at 11 11 a.m the governor lieutenant governor called the bill up and so it began typically in texas a filibuster because they're rare and because they are a test of endurance we can't have a sip of water we can't have a hard candy in our mouth nothing to eat can't lean on our desk, no sitting down, and obviously no leaving the floor to go to the bathroom. So it is a test of physical endurance, and it has been shown respect uh, from folks on the opposite side of the aisle when a filibuster is being conducted. This was the first time, actually, in the history of a Texas filibuster that there was hostility to it and an attempt to shut it down. I didn't really know that's what I would confront that day. Um, And for the first, I don't know, two or three hours, I really wasn't clear on that intent. And so in that early part, time was going by so slowly. I was afraid to look up at the clock because I was afraid I would look up and only an hour had gone by and I'd already be, you know, completely tired or running out of things to say. And I was probably, I don't know, three hours or so in before I finally did look up to see what time it was. But then the point, the first point of order was called. And then I realized, okay, they're up to something. And it was very clear that Republican senators were taking turns watching me. I could tell when it was someone's assigned post because they wouldn't take their eyes off of me for however long their their slot was. And they were looking for me to slip up in some way so that they could call a point of order and, and try to bring the filibuster to an end. And when that started, then I got kind of mad. And when I got mad... It really helped me because time started flying. And as the second uh, point of order was called and sustained, and I knew I had only one more, and I understood that these were being very unfairly ruled upon by the chair and that they were going to try to keep me on the tightest rail possible, I got so focused on staying on that rail that time just kind of started flying And of course, the fact that there were people there, um, the gallery was full. I expected that that would be the case. I knew there would be some folks in the halls of the Capitol as well, but I could never have predicted the turnout that actually uh, appeared 
people came from all over the state and many of them were making kind of an unexpected pilgrimage that day. You know, they got up and they weren't thinking they were going to come to the Capitol, but they saw what was happening. They wanted to come and, and add their support to what we were doing there. And before long, there were so many people in the Capitol that it had to be closed because it filled to capacity, which is incredibly hard to do. In fact, it was the first time in the history of the Texas Capitol that that's happened. And still they came. And I could feel and hear that energy. I knew that something extraordinary was going on there in terms of the number of people who had showed up. And that really buoyed me through, through the day and through some of those tough moments. The first violation was that she was off topic by talking about Planned Parenthood's budget. The second was that she received assistance with a back brace from a colleague, thus breaking the don't lean rule. And the third violation that ended the filibuster was when Senator Davis discussed a sonogram law that passed in 2011, which the Senate ruled was also off topic. The filibuster was just under 13 hours. I spoke for about 11 and a half of that. And then the chair ruled on the final point of order and made an attempt to call the filibuster to an end. That began a lengthy debate over the parliamentary ruling. And that's when my Democratic colleagues in the Texas Senate stepped up. And and I got to tell you, I'm still in awe of how strategically they argued that point of order and what an amazing job they did of eating up the clock. Ultimately, at about a quarter till midnight, the filibuster was called to an end. And it was the people who were there who got us past the midnight deadline. My Senate colleague, my sister, Leticia Vandepute, who wasn't even planning to come that day. She literally on that day had buried her father who had tragically died in an automobile accident. She lives in San Antonio, which is about an hour and 15 minutes away from Austin. And she heard what was happening um, and how hostily I was being treated. And she decided that she just needed to come and be there. And what she told me later was that her intent was just to come and stand on the floor with me and just send me her energy and love and support. But of course, it wasn't long before she was engaged in the parliamentary debate. And the chair or someone had ordered that the microphones of the Democratic senators were turned off. And that meant that getting the attention of the chair during that parliamentary debate was increasingly challenging. And she was frustrated because she had been trying um, to be recognized and had had not been. And so after the filibuster was called to an end and the microphones were, hmm, coincidentally turned back on, she asked to be, to be recognized, and she was. And, and she said, Mr. Chair, at, at what, what point, point must is, a female um, senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And when she said it, of course, it was appropriate and poignant in that moment. But the broader meaning of that question wasn't lost on anyone who was there. 
And the folks in the gallery who had been respectful of the rules all day, but who were watching them getting broken left and right by senators on the floor, they finally erupted. And it was her question that sparked that eruption. And when they did, um, they stood, they began screaming, pounding their feet. They were crying out, let her speak, let her speak. And of course, that wasn't just about me. It was about all women whose voices were being shut down in that moment. And then everyone in the hallways started screaming and everyone outside on the Capitol lawn. And it was just the most amazing noise, beautiful noise, you know, the sound of democracy at work, right? in a state where we have tended to believe that our voices just don't matter. And so it was even more extraordinary considering how beaten down so many people are here. And it was because of them that the secretary of the Senate was unable to take that voice vote in time, though she was trying. Um, The final vote was taken at 12.03, three minutes past midnight, and we collectively succeeded if only temporarily, in killing that bad bill. Members, it's now past midnight, and so I'm going to look for a motion from Senator Whitmire to sign a dime. It's really hard to describe. Um, We actually wound up debating in private um, with the lieutenant governor and our Republican Senate colleagues whether the bill had actually successfully been killed. Uh, Someone, you may know this, actually went in and changed the timestamp on the recording of the last vote to make it look as though it had come in before midnight. And thanks to some unbelievably astute observer on social media who had taken a snapshot of the original timestamp of 12.03, thanks to that, We had concrete evidence that it had been changed, that we had actually killed the bill, and we debated that round and round, uh, particularly with the lieutenant governor. And then even after he accepted that that was the case, we spent, I promise you, another good hour debating with him on how he was going to come out and articulate the ruling that the bill had been killed. He was trying so hard to say it without saying it, you know, and he kept going off and spending time writing something and coming back and saying, okay, how about this? And we would say, no, that's not acceptable. So it was, it was close to three in the morning before he finally came out and declared his ruling that indeed the bill had died. A lot of people had stayed around for that, amazingly. And so when we walked out of the chamber, the hallways of the Capitol were still filled. The atrium was absolutely filled with the most incredible energy. Cecile Richards was there. Of course, Cecile is the executive director of Planned Parenthood and the daughter of our only ever or well second actually but only elected ever female governor Um, and she was standing beneath her mother's portrait in that rotunda in that moment this is straight from senator Remy davis okay hold your applause first i love you guys okay (laughs) we love you 
Lieutenant Governor has agreed that SB5 is dead. And it was just, it was remarkable. It was remarkable to be part of that group of people. We all went out onto the lawn of the Capitol, and I and my Senate colleagues stood on the Capitol steps, and there were so many people, and it was pitch black, and I couldn't see anyone. And I had a, someone had given me a bullhorn, and I just aimed it up straight in the air and and spoke briefly, um, and of course, with such gratitude for everything that, we'd all done together that day. What time was it at this point? It was it was around three-ish in the morning. Okay, yeah. I must have been so exhausted. <laughs> I was so, I, actually when I, when I left the floor after standing, you know, and, and not having anything to eat or drink for 13 hours, I went into the Senate lounge and I just couldn't sit down. Like I was still so filled with all of this adrenaline. And finally, uh, Senator Zeffirini said, sit down. And she forced me to eat a yogurt and have something to drink. Um, but, it, you know, the, the time really, really flew by. Um, and I, I went home, I don't know, probably around five and had to be back at the Capitol the very next day to an astonishing amount of press coverage. Um, I think I was back at eight that next morning and we began doing on-camera interviews and those lasted for three solid days, literally with one camera crew coming out and another one coming in. Um, but it was great because it gave attention to a really important issue happening here. And that's one thing I, I really want to stress. When we come together and we fight for our values even if we lose, which of course, ultimately we were called back to another special session and that bill passed. The importance of fighting cannot be overstated because when we wage fights like that, we call attention to what legislators are up to all over the country. And we raise the awareness in a way that helps others who may not have been tuned in and tapped in to understand exactly what their legislators are up to and to see that in many instances, it's not in keeping with the things that matter to them. As Senator Davis mentions, the bill did eventually pass a few weeks later in another special session, but parts of it were later struck down in the Supreme Court case, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. And Senator Davis's filibuster garnered more attention towards what was happening at the state level to chip away at abortion rights. It also put Senator Davis in the national spotlight. She went from a social media following of maybe a few thousand to hundreds of thousands of followers, both in and out of Texas. She received hateful mail and online harassment, and right-wing websites and protesters began calling her Abortion Barbie. But she says that the positive responses outweighed the negative, both in volume and what they meant to her. And, and what for me was the most poignant of that experience was sometimes, and it still happens to me today, I, get, I literally get chills thinking about it. Um, a young woman will come up to me and not really say very much, but shed some tears and say thank you. And what you know is that that person has had a personal journey um, and an abortion story of her own. And that, you know, the importance of speaking up and out on an issue like that for people, even if they don't feel comfortable sharing their own story forward, it's really important. The, 
I think it was the day after or two days after the filibuster, I went to a Panera um, and I walked in and it was really kind of my first understanding of the impact that this had had on young women. There was a young woman working behind the counter. She couldn't have been more than, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. And she saw me and she just kind of gasped, came around the corner, already crying quite hard and just took me and hugged me. Didn't say a word other than thank you. Um, but I understood, obviously, she had a really important and powerful story. And that when we speak on behalf of the need for abortion, safe and legal abortion, we're speaking for a, a lot of people. There was a moment on the Senate floor when I was reading a, a letter from someone named Carol M. And her story was my story. It was exactly my story. And as I was reading it, I was so overcome with emotion. And in that moment, I was having this conversation with myself. Should I share my story right now? And I decided not to in that moment and on that day. And the reason I did was I didn't want it to become about me. But then afterward, with such you know, respect and admiration for all the other women who'd come forward, I didn't feel like I would really be serving the movement or even myself personally if I didn't share my story as well. So I made a decision to do that, and I wanted to do it on my terms. Um, I did it through the release of my memoir. Um, I didn't you know, publicize the fact that this was going to be a part of that book. And I shared my experience of a very much wanted pregnancy where post 20 weeks, we discovered that the baby daughter that we very much wanted had a, a really tragic and unsustainable fetal abnormality, a brain abnormality. Um, and we were confronted with a really difficult decision a one that took us some time to make. And after getting three and four different doctor opinions to make it, I understood in that moment that the idea that a legislator should insert themselves into what was the most difficult personal decision I've made in my lifetime, it, it felt personal. Yes. Um, but that wasn't necessarily the, the strongest motivating force for me. The motivating force for me was an understanding of what it was going to mean to tens of thousands of women in our state if this law became reality. That's the interesting thing about a lot of people who show up and fight on behalf of reproductive freedoms. For some of us, that issue won't ever arise again. And yet, we are looking back on our own journeys and understanding that we have to pay it forward, that our access, our freedoms, our rights are those that should be accorded to women who are coming after us, and that it's our responsibility if we've had those personal experiences particularly to make sure that we're part of the battle to make sure that the women that come after us are going to have them as well.
The attention from the filibuster gave her the momentum to run for governor of Texas, a position that hadn't been filled by a Democrat since Ann Richards lost her run for a second term in 1994 to George W. Bush. But Wendy's bid for governor was unsuccessful, and an anti-choice Republican, Greg Abbott, won. He since signed a sweeping anti-abortion law, which, among other things, forces people who've miscarried or had abortions to make arrangements for fetal burials. By the time we got to Election Day, you know, we we knew that we weren't going to win. I didn't write a victory speech. I wrote a concession speech. But still, in that moment of conceding, I was overcome with emotion, not for me, but for everything that we were fighting for and all the people in our state who were going to go without a voice. I'm looking at this legislative session right now. It's been the most cruel session um, people are being hurt so dramatically here and there's no one with a veto pen in their hand. Um, there's someone who applauds it and welcomes it and it's, it's bad for our state. Um, so was the fight worth it? Absolutely. Would I do it again? I get asked that a lot. Senator Davis says she is considering running for office again. But for now, she has her attention focused on inspiring young women and girls to take political action and get involved in their communities through her nonprofit, Deeds Not Words. So after I lost my gubernatorial race and I no longer had my Senate seat, I started thinking about how I wanted to spend my energy. And I was trying not to rush into anything too quickly, but of course I went into it headlong really fast. The election took place in November of 2014. I officially launched the nonprofit in March of 2016, um, but had decided that I was going to do this many, many months prior and had been, you know, really working on the lead up to the official launch. The decision was formed because I knew I wanted to stay involved in the conversation about gender equality and wanted to play an important role in that. I started um, traveling around the country and meeting with all these different organizations that are doing work in the reproductive rights space and the economic justice space and uh, sexual assault and sex trafficking space and trying to fit into that somehow without replicating it or competing with what someone else was already doing. And then simultaneously, I was being invited to speak all over the country. And to my surprise, I still had this remarkable audience of young women who looked up to me. I didn't think that was going to happen after losing my gubernatorial race. Um, And so many of them asked me the same or similar question. It was some version of, what do we do? You know, it was clear that there was incredible passion and understanding about the challenges that faced us, but not really the understanding of how to plug in in a way that would be effective. And that was kind of my light bulb moment. There were all these organizations out there doing great work. Here was this massive number of young women who really wanted to get involved And connecting them made a lot of sense. And so Deeds Not Words started really as an aggregator, a platform where young women can go to our site and find ways that these organizations need their help. Senator Davis is a Democrat, but she says that Deeds Not Words is nonpartisan. You can check out their website at deedsnotwords.com. 
They also put up a newsletter that you can sign up for there. Wendy says that she wants young people to be informed about what's happening legislatively to control women, LGBTQ people, and people of color. But she also wants them to see how individuals and small grassroots organizations can make a big difference and create positive change. So Deeds Not Words aims to highlight these successes as well. I guess I I just want to say to all the young women who are listening, I'm sending you love. I'm sending you energy. I want you to own your power to feel how beautifully strong you are. And I want you to know when you've had a tough day and you had some dirt kicked in your face and you're feeling low, around the bend is a better one. You'll make it a better one. And I'm going to do everything I can to help make that happen for you as well. Choiceless is produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio, with editorial oversight by Mark Folletti, our director of multimedia and executive producer. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode is by Doug Helsel and Bruce Robeson. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team, for getting the word out about Choiceless. You too can get the word out about Choiceless by rating and reviewing us on iTunes. I know this is super annoying and I say it all the time, but it really does make a big difference. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is that other people will see the show and we want to reach a wide audience of people who maybe don't know yet how they feel about abortion rights or other issues we cover. And maybe they need some more information about what effects these laws have in the lives of people across the country. Please tune in next week to hear from Stephanie Toady, the lead attorney in the Supreme Court case that struck down some of the provisions in this law, Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>